Hi, and welcome to the Stefan Levera podcast focused on Bitcoin and Austrian economics. Today, for episode 108, we are carrying on with the Bitcoin custody series with the well-respected Bitcoin developer, Brian Bishop. But first, let me introduce the sponsors of the podcast. So firstly, Kraken, one of the world's biggest and best Bitcoin exchanges. You guys know I like the way they operate. They've really impressed me. They've got a really strong focus on security. And as an exchange, they've really acted ethically in the space under Jesse Powell's leadership. They're one of the longest standing exchanges. They're consistently rated the best. They have some of the best liquidity available in the industry. They've got high trading volume and low fees. They've also got 24-7 support, and on the institutional side, they are providing best-in-class accounting, reconciliation, and reporting services for cryptocurrency hedge funds, asset managers, and fund administrators. Kraken have an OTC desk for those higher-touch, large block trades. They offer five fiat currencies and also offer margin and futures trading. To learn more and sign up, go to the Kraken link in the show notes. Next up, look into Unchained Capital. They're a Bitcoin financial services company offering a multi-signature two of three keys vault and also offering Bitcoin collateralized loans. So on the vault side, you can use Trezor or Ledger. You still maintain control with your two keys and Unchained Capital would be the third key or co-signer in that case that you need them to sign as well. And there's a lot of work being done on this and open source contributions coming from Unchained Capital. So look out for my upcoming episode with Dhruv Bansal from Unchained Capital where we will talk about some of this stuff. Also, on the Bitcoin collateralized loan side, Unchained allows you to get USD liquidity without selling your Bitcoins. So consider your own scenario, but this might be more tax efficient for you. If you want to learn more and sign up, go to the Unchained Capital link in the show notes. So carrying on with the Bitcoin custody series. So we started on SLP 106 and we were talking about Glacier Protocol with Diogo Monica. And in episode 107 with CASA CEO and CTO respectively, Jeremy Welch and Jameson Lopp, we were talking about the CASA Wealth Security Protocol. So today we have Brian Bishop. On Twitter, you'll know him as at K-A-N-Z-U-E-R. He's a well-known Bitcoin developer. He's got a wealth of knowledge when it comes to Bitcoin storage, owing to his years of experience working at LedgerX previously and as a consultant nowadays. So in this interview, we touch on vaults, Shamir's secret sharing, hardware, smart custody, transcripts, as well as transhumanism. On to the interview. Brian, welcome to the show, man. I'm a big fan of your work. Thank you. Big fan of yours as well. Yeah, so look, we're doing Bitcoin custody. I know you're one of you're one of the guys to talk to on this exact topic. And so maybe we, we'll just start with a little bit of a background. What was some of your work with LedgerX? And then what's some of the work that you're doing more recently? So um, I started at LedgerX in 2014, and it was a pretty interesting experience. I ended up staying there for four years, and I left uh, uh, just about one year ago exactly from today. Um, And, um, you know, I was super interested in what they were doing because I had actually previously looked into clearinghouses. And I was trying to figure out what does it mean to be a clearinghouse when you have Bitcoin? Like, how does Bitcoin change the financial system? And clearinghouses are a very important part of the financial system. Um, they're, they're often where systemic risk is aggregated and things like that. And um, so when I saw LedgerX and we got to working together, um, of course, I wanted to team up and join because I thought the, the mission was and is important. Um, and uh, it was just a, um, 
very interesting experience. I mean, as you can imagine, Bitcoin's a very unregulated asset in general, like fundamentally, even philosophically. And on the other hand, if you want to be the first federally regulated Bitcoin options exchange like Ledger X did, and as they became, then you're very regulated. So on the one hand, you have something unregulated and something very regulated. And it was just a, it was a fascinating experience. Yeah, so actually, it might be interesting to dig into that a little bit. What were some of the – I think it would be interesting for the listeners just to understand because back in 2014, I'm sure the ecosystem was much less developed and some of the good options in terms of custody at that point would have been things like offline armory, right, things like that. That was what people were doing then um, because there wasn't like a built-out – you know, there was no Glacier Protocol then. What was the thinking then and how has it shifted to now? Well, so, I mean, first – at any startup, you, you really don't have any idea whether this thing is going to work. And at LedgerX in particular, the, the, the bet or the gamble that was made was that the CFTC would end up being the correct regulator for this startup, and also that the startup would be able to secure the licenses required to operate as a, as a, as a clearinghouse for, for Bitcoin options. And anyway, it turns out those bets uh, definitely paid off. Uh, it just took a few years for them to get there. Um, Many people aren't aware of that, that they actually did uh, get licensed um, years ago to to operate as an options exchange for Bitcoin. Um, as part of that, uh, all of the contracts are physically collateralized with, with physical Bitcoin, like real Bitcoin um, that's custodied at LedgerX. And that was one of the big projects that I was um, part of and responsible for was uh, secure storage of Bitcoin. Right. And so what was some of the thinking there? And how did that sort of change? Were the things that you were working on then uh, in those days, did they become sort of formative in terms of how the rest of the industry is looking at it now? Or did it did the, did the thinking shift a little bit? So there, there's definitely some things that I would consider to be um, standard or, or a part of any good design for a system for storing Bitcoin. And that, that's actually around the human processes around storing Bitcoin, like checklists, documentation, something that I call the signing ceremony or signing ritual. And uh, those things uh, tend to be something that, that every company should do. Now, there were also some, some technical choices made and design decisions that, looking back, would I revise them? Sure. Um, for example, I am greatly embarrassed that um, we had to wait until Andrew Chow to have uh, partially signed Bitcoin transactions as a BIP-174. You know, we ended up, we were doing something quite similar. I just neglected to figure that it should be standardized, and that's that's profoundly embarrassing. But it's a good standard. It's a very good idea. We should definitely be using partially signed Bitcoin transactions in that encoding format. Yeah, that's fantastic. Uh, and just for any listeners who are unfamiliar, make sure you go back and check out episode 99, where I talked to Andrew Chow about PSBT, partially signed Bitcoin transactions. Uh, but Brian, back in those days, as I understand, I, th I recall there was you know offline armory, right? And there was something sort of close to it, but it was like its own thing, right? It wasn't like a gen generic... Uh, uh, what's the word, uh, serialized wallet interchange format that you can take from one wallet to a hardware wallet to other pieces of software to sort of jointly construct a transaction that works. Yeah, so when I talk about this, um, Armory comes up often, and um, I thought I knew Armory, but I get the sense that uh, if you go back and look at Armory, you're always going to find something new that they thought of first back in 2011, basically. So it's an interesting archaeological expedition, I suppose. 
Right, yeah. And so let's just get into, I guess, what, what's some of the later work that you've been doing uh, since leaving Ledger X? What, what's been your focus? Well, I've just been doing a whole bunch of consulting and contracting in the Bitcoin space. And this goes um, across the board from things like basic, um, like just basic consulting and strategy, but also things like code review, security analysis, um, just peer review of software and systems that other people have developed. But then also things like doing architecture for new projects. Um, and, um, you know, I haven't talked about it publicly, but this also um, includes a uh, stint at um, Blockstream, actually, as a, as a contractor. Fantastic. The gun for hire. Uh, but I'm sure you've got a lot of different stories about uh, custody and cold storage. Might be uh, interesting now just to dive into a little more detail if, if you've got any horror stories for the listeners. Yeah, I do have horror stories, and I'm, I'm saddened to say that. Um, you know, the process of handling Bitcoin, as a, as a developer, I am still somewhat terrified every time I do a Bitcoin transaction. It's actually uh, unclear whether you're really doing everything correctly, because if you do it wrong, it's gone. So for, for myself, I personally try to always test my Bitcoin transactions on like a test network before I actually do the real transaction. And I, I know it sounds burdensome, but for uh, large amounts of money, this does make sense. And unfortunately, I've heard for some particularly wealthy individuals that have bought into Bitcoin and who are famous in the in the news for such actions. I've I've um, through through one of my projects, a uh, cold storage project, talking with people, I found that uh, it turns out that it tends to be the case that. These guys don't come up with a plan. They don't have a good uh, strategy written down. Um, and and to me, that indicates that they are not operating their Bitcoin wallets as securely as they could be. In, in one incident that I'm aware of, um, a, a what I would describe a Bitcoin core developer was invited into a process where someone was securing a large amount of Bitcoin as an investment, and they... Um, we're introduced to a whole team of other people that, that, in my opinion, you know, they were definitely not Bitcoin core developers. They were just other people, um, you know, friends of the family or something. And, uh, you know, just basic things like, well, send me a PGP signed message of the, of the signature of the, uh, sorry, excuse me, a PGP signed message of the, the address or keys you want me to use. And like the other individuals involved had no idea what that meant. So there, there's just basic human training that has to occur to get this right, and that's that's very much something I'm focused on right now. Software can definitely help, but there are still human steps and actions and checklists that have to occur. Right. So let's break that down a little bit. So the the I guess the procedure you're referring to there is a signing procedure. Can you talk through what's normally required? So in particular, let's say that you um, have a team that's distributed and someone has generated a new key, and they are communicating that key to you. The public key, of course. They keep the private key and they communicate the public key to you. How do you know that when that data arrives at your machine, that that data has not been tampered with? Well, one way that you can do this is using PGP signed messages, where you sign a message indicating uh, cryptographically that uh, this was, the, in fact, the true message. And it becomes unforgeable for adversaries who do not have the private key. 
Yep. So this is like that example where you might want to, I guess um, you're getting at this idea that you want to verify that it truly is their signature or that it truly is their key. And you might need to check that not through one channel, but through different channels. So it's harder to fake. That Absolutely. Kind of thing. In fact, um, you know, one thing that I've been thinking about and I'm not ready to move on it, but there should be a standard in our community and industry for um, signed withdrawal requests uh, for Bitcoin exchanges where users uh, submit a signed, cryptographically signed message indicating that they really do want to withdraw from the exchange. This way, exchanges can uh, verify that these withdrawal requests are legitimate. Because right now, I mean, the only way that these exchanges really verify it is, as far as I'm aware, phone calls and emails and video chat. Right, so it's sort of putting it on the exchange to verify that the user did truly want to do the withdrawal and that they wanted to do the withdrawal to this specific address when really if a hacker or an attacker knows that, once they've compromised the exchange website, then they could do all these sorts of different tricks like replacing the address with which, which is uh, inserted into the website so that they can sort of hijack the withdrawal or they might do uh, like a hijacking the deposit as well. I guess that's another possibility. If somebody goes to the exchange, they, they ask the exchange, oh, give me an address for me to deposit into. And then at that point, uh, they could get hijacked and send Bitcoins to the wrong address, the, hack, the hackers or the attackers address. That's right. Although that's a different problem. That's right. So there's one particular security aspect for exchanges that I've been uh, recently popularizing some thinking around. In particular, I've been looking at exchanges that get hacked, and they usually have hot wallets, and the hot wallets get drained. And my observation here is that when an attacker gets into a web server for an exchange, it's not the case that the exchange developers were dumb enough to put the private key to their wallet right there on the same web server serving up the exchange that the hackers got into. Instead, what usually happens in, is that the attackers get in and there's a signing server of some kind where Bitcoin transactions get signed. And maybe it checks a database of withdrawal requests or something, or maybe it checks some other indication and then it signs the, the transaction. So based off of this, I, I don't think that just withdrawal requests alone is enough because unfortunately an attacker could insert um, withdrawal requests into a database. And so instead, I think uh, something that we should really be looking at is this idea of uh, what I call a restricted signing server. And basically what this does is it says, okay, I will actually sign anything that is given to me on condition that the output script in the Bitcoin transaction matches a specific output script template. And that output script template is the following. It's the exchange is allowed at any time to immediately recover the funds to a cold storage wallet or relative, relative time lock delay and then the key that the user is withdrawing to. So that could be the user's legitimate key or the attacker's key. And the idea is that this transaction gets broadcasted um, and it, it only gets signed in, in the event that um, the output script exactly matches that template I just described. And then it gets broadcasted and the exchange has whatever that delay period is, maybe two days, maybe one day, to watch on the blockchain. And if that destination key doesn't look right, it's allowed to revoke that those funds and return it to cold storage for the exchange. I think that will significantly reduce the, 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 the uh, consequences of theft attempts at, at exchanges that get hacked. Got it. Uh, let me just think that through in my head again. So what you're saying is there would be a relative time lock placed on that transaction, on the outgoing transaction from the exchange, 
and the signing server is only going to sign it in the case that it has this particular scripting in the way that the transaction is crafted or constructed, let's say. And you're saying that it, if there's something suspicious, the exchange might withdraw it to a given cold storage address that the exchange knows it has under its own control. That's right. So this requires the exchange or even the users to be monitoring the blockchain to watch for those potential transactions. Right. And so I suppose in that case where let's say the exchange later figures out, oh, damn, actually there was something wrong. We think our customer got compromised. It's actually an attacker address that we're sending to. Then in that case, how, how would the uh, exchange spend it back to the back to its own safe address, if you will. So there's a few different ways to do that. Um, one is that uh, one possibility is to have pre-signed transactions that could be broadcasted that can do the recovery, and they're signed at the same time as the other transaction is signed. Or you can um, uh, possibly, uh, like you want the delay to be long enough so that you can go to the cold keys and make that transaction. Uh, so that's another, uh, another option. Uh, there, there's a few ways to do it. Got it. And so is that related to your Vault proposal, or is that separate? It is related. Um, and I've, I've personally been finding it challenging to determine how related it really is, whether it's the same idea or not of my Vault's proposal. And so the Vault's proposal, interesting story. Um, the one that got written up in the media is technically broken. But I quickly published an email afterwards uh, indicating us a, a less broken version um, but yeah, I mean, basically the idea of a vault is to have that revocability period. The, the problem though is that in Bitcoin today, the previously the only known ways to do that revocability period was using something called a covenant, which would require a soft fork or a hard fork to implement in Bitcoin. Uh, what a covenant is, is it's just an extra restriction on a Bitcoin transaction. You know, you can think of, a, of a, the requirement of a public key and a, its private key signing as one form of a restriction or covenant. But there are more advanced covenants that people have imagined that say only transactions that look like this format are allowed to spend this output, things like that. Anyway, I was thinking about this and I figured that there's, um, I figured incorrectly that there's partially a way to do this with pre-signed transactions without requiring a fork on the network. And the flaw in my proposal was that essentially you pre-sign this huge tree of transactions where you can keep bumping it into the future if you want um, until the end of time, you know, because relative time lock and you can just bump that out. Um, and in particular, if, if an attacker um, uh, steals some of the coins, you get to revoke the rest to cold storage. The, the original flaw in the proposal was that it was um, unfortunately assuming that the attacker would voluntarily tell you that the attacker has stolen your information. Um, and unfortunately, that's not a reasonable assumption. Um, the, the updated version is, is um, such that it has the following property. The property is that it is a vault where if you set it up in this way, a theft can be detected and you will lose at most 1% of your funds. So I can't prevent 100, I can't prevent um, the, the thief from stealing at all, but I can limit the amount that the thief is able to steal. So the way that this works is the following. There is a Bitcoin transaction setting up this vault. Um, there's some inputs, and then in one example, um, there's 100 outputs, and each output has 1% of the funds. Each output has the same script template that I just described for the restricted signing server, the one where there's an immediate recovery to cold storage available as a possible route 
or relative time lock spinning to some key. And that key is predetermined at the time that you set up the vault. And so the concern is that between the time that you set up the vault and the time that you broadcast this transaction, it's possible that an adversary has stolen that hot key that was uh, uh, already baked into this whole scheme. And so what this is doing, uh, oh, and there's one more thing. There, on each of the relative time locks and each of the 100 outputs, each one is one day further into the future. So on the first day, 1% is available. On the second day, 1% is available, and so on. Um, and the idea is that uh, you have to sign a transaction during that one day to take that 1%. And if an attacker does it, it indicates that, first of all, the attacker has the private key, and you should use the recovery method on the other 99 outputs. You can do it at any time. If he steals the first 1%, you do it for the other 99 outputs. If he steals the second to the last, you do the recovery for the last 1%, and so on. Um, anyway, what this does, in effect, is it limits your losses to 1% of your total funds. Got it. And so the exchange or whatever service provider is you know, doing this, using this vault construction, they would presumably be watching the chain to make sure that it hasn't gone to the wrong address or, or maybe more likely the customer would come to them and say, hang on, I did this withdrawal and it didn't come to me. What's going on? And at that point you would tick off and go, oh, okay, maybe we need to now go look into the uh, this relative time lock uh, or not rather the other pathway, the immediate spending pathway to spend it back to their own cold storage, correct? So I might need a better name for this, but I've, I've personally been calling it like a watchtower. So the, the users of this scheme would uh, require perhaps multiple watchtowers to be monitoring the blockchain and even taking actions on their behalf if they don't otherwise trigger some tripwire switch saying, please don't, you know, please, I'm actually trying to withdraw my money or, or whatever it is. Um, yeah, all, all of the proposals that I just described require something like watchtowers or given another name. Uh, the other interesting thing is that actually the, the method that I just described for vaults and losing at most 1% was actually uh, developed for the purpose of personal cold storage. Um, I sure it, I'm, I'm sure it does apply to commercial cold storage and custody, uh, but the dynamics might be a little bit different. As an example, um, there's something similar to trusted setup in, uh, in my scheme. In particular, if you choose to do this with multi-sig vaults, where multiple people come together to set up these this vault scheme um, or even um, yeah anyway um, uh, the requirement is um, that at least one of the members of this multi-sig group deletes the key because if you don't delete the key then it's possible for another transaction to be signed that avoids the vault structure so this is the pre-signed locking covenant mechanism right and the problem with this is that this in of in, one must be honest, one must honestly delete the key, is that in the commercial context, I'm not sure that businesses are willing to make that assumption that someone really did delete the key. In a personal cold storage context, I can certainly trust myself that I destroyed the hardware that just had the key. So I think that's a slightly more reasonable assumption. In a commercial context, I'm not so sure. Right. I mean, uh, potentially that could become part of some kind of signing ceremony or ritual. Like if everyone watches that person, you know, delete the key. Uh, but I suppose you're right. There could be some way that they've tampered with the setup such that they actually maintain a copy of the key. And how do you prove they've deleted every single possible copy? I guess that's the difficulty you're getting at. So th there is um, one idea I've been toying with that might save the commercial custody case for, for a scenario where you have to delete keys is uh, models more like um, green address two of two, where one where the user has one of the keys, 
And so in that context, you can still probably trust the user to delete the key if you ask them to. So I think that might be reasonable. Okay, and I guess let's sort of bring it back to the, uh, I guess the, I guess it's it's just so scary, right? There's like, there's just so many things you don't know who you can trust. So you just sort of have to try and figure out uh, ways to kind of make yourself safe from multiple angles. Um, I know you were also keen to talk about this idea of a bit flip horror story. Can you tell us what is a bit flip? So, okay, in, in computer security and in Bitcoin in particular, um, a hypothetical but very real concern is that there are things in this universe called cosmic rays, and they are high, en- high energy particles that uh, sometimes tend to intersect uh, computers. And when they intersect computers in certain ways, they can cause a bit flip. And this is called a bit flip error. And so when thinking about different security protocols and different software implementation, being able to protect, protect against these problems is very important. So techniques like checksums are, are definitely helpful and other things like that, or uh, ECC memory and so on. Um, but yeah, I mean, it is a big concern. And that's part of the reason why I mentioned earlier that even when doing Bitcoin transactions, uh, I personally can feel terrified from time to time. It's this idea that there might be a single error, just one little bit flip somewhere that might completely break something or, and it's just very hard to get this right, which is why we need open standards for cold storage and wallets and so on. We, we need to get this right as a community and certainly for people who aren't developers and understand some of these nuances. Gotcha. And with that, that actually brings to mind uh, Glacier Protocol as well, right? So this is address reuse, right? Where actually as part of Glacier Protocol, they actually do use the address just to be sure that you can actually spend from that address. But then the downside is there is a privacy trade-off there because you are now reusing the address. It makes it easier for an outside observer to now link those transactions or to try and infer something about how you know what somebody is doing with that address. And potentially that might be one piece of the puzzle that helps them understand, oh, I know Brian is securing his coins using X, Y, and Z protocol, or he did it at this time. Where was he at this time? Things like that, right? They could try to start using that information. So Glacier Protocol was a very interesting approach with um, basically written documentation with steps for what software to run and how to use it. And I think it's a, it falls a little short in that I think the, the ideal solution would be both uh, a lot of checklists and written documentation and steps and even videos and even um, uh, paid training services, but then also additional software to help you walk through all the steps as well. I think that's a very important piece of it. In fact, I've been working with Christopher Allen on um, his project SmartCustody.com, which started as a series of workshops around the question of how to secure assets for consumers. And uh, in particular, the workshop um, started with um, just a full day of walking through various hardware wallets and adversarial modeling about what are the possible threats. And, um, you know, for each person, that's different. And depending on which threats you're particularly concerned with, some of the different hardware choices get made. Yeah, there's so much with that because I guess, yeah, part of it is also how easy is it to use multi-signature and what hardware do you use? And also it's that idea of um, fighting against bit rot, right? So so sometimes in certain models that's used, that's why multi-sig is used as well. That, you know, for example, in the CASA model, they go seedless. And the idea is that, you know, you've got three or five 
Um, whereas perhaps with other models, let's say the unchained capital model, where they're going two of three and unchained holds one of the three, then you know it's a slightly different model. How do you think about um, comparing, you know, going seedless versus backing up seeds? Because I guess the argument either way would be one would be, you know, if you're going seedless, that's easier for the customer to think about and less possible things to protect because now you've got to protect the backup seeds for each of those. Uh, but depending on how many pieces of redundancy you have, the seed might be required or a, or obviously in a, in a single signature hardware wallet scenario, then obviously you do need to back up the seed. So how do you kind of think that through in terms of the trade-off decision there? Well, unfortunately, I don't have an answer for you, but I can definitely talk about those trade-offs. I think sure. Flaxman in particular is fond of mentioning that for the case of single sig setups, it's actually, um, you know, one of one, okay, well, really it would be better to do one of two multi-sig. And the reason for that is bit rot and hardware failures. And if your one hardware wallet fails in a one of one setup, well, now you're out of luck, especially if you didn't have a, a, a seed written down. Um, so in that case, if you're doing one of one with a hardware wallet without a seed, you should be doing one of two multi-sig so that you have two devices and if one fails, you're okay. If you do two of two multi-sig and one fails and you have no seed backups, uh, then you're in serious trouble, right? So yeah, um, the the question of seedless versus um, writing down seeds, yeah, it's a it's an interesting one. Um, I I can definitely see um, merits both ways. So when you have a seed-based backup system, one of the questions that I end up always having is, okay, so I've put a hardware wallet in a vault in a safe somewhere, and now I have a seed that I'm going to write down, uh, a recovery seed or or other recovery system. And of course, you shouldn't really be putting that in the same vault. It increases the complexity, right? Um, yeah, I think I think that we're a long way from having a single um, standard, uh, uh, you know, standard of care and quality uh, for these procedures. Uh, just producing hardware wallets isn't enough. There needs to be a broader, broader system and mechanization around this. Right. And I guess I might also ask you this now as well, as I know you're a little closer to the Bitcoin Core developers, uh, obviously, as you run the list and everything. I've noticed that some Bitcoin Core developers are a little more, let's say, skeptical of hardware wallets. Can you articulate why that is and what they would recommend instead? Well, okay. So many of the hardware wallets are developed on the basis of, of like this idea that they're consumer friendly and easy to use. So that's one thing. Um, the the security claims of hardware wallets uh, are certainly open to to uh, analysis and criticism, and there's a big question as to whether uh, hardware wallets are really a great idea, or if you can get equivalent security with regular commodity hardware like just laptops stored in vaults that are air gapped and never connected to the internet. So on the hardware wallet side, um, in particular, even hardware security modules, the argument is that you have tamper-resistant, tamper-proof, tamper-hardened uh, hardware that makes it extremely difficult for an attacker to extract secret data from. However, in hardware wallets on the market, it's not necessarily the case that all of them use that. Some of the, these hardware wallets are actually more uh, along the lines of consumer-friendly interfaces more than anything else. Um, and with some some amount of security, of course, as a consequence of not having keys on your your computer, um, it it remains to be seen if 
secure enclaves or trusted execution environments in hardware security modules are really advantageous compared to using multi-sig with commodity hardware stored in multiple locations. One of the ways that I look at this is I call it, um, you know, the, the, when thinking about the philosophy of cold storage, I call it uh, multi-factor difficulty. That's how I assess cold storage. You know, what does cold really mean? It means that there, is, there are multiple different types of difficulty factors for accessing and using this cold storage, whether that's uh, secrecy of the location, geographic distance, storing in multiple jurisdictions, or even um, access procedures like a heavy door or something. Um, you know, if you have a heavy door for the vault, maybe grandma isn't going to be able to be a thief. You know, it eliminates some of the possible attackers, you know, because grandma can't open a 200-pound door or something. I don't know. Um, uh, so yeah, so you need, you need multiple different types of difficulty. And this is actually similar to um, uh, multi-sig, in fact. Um, you know, one of the recommendations I've been making lately is that if you have multi-sig, in particular multi-party multi-sig, with a number of your friends and colleagues or something, uh, I actually believe it's important to have um, a group of people that have a mix of motivations. For instance, uh, maybe some business colleagues, maybe some friends, and then maybe some family members. Because your family members have very different motivations regarding you than your possibly your friends or your colleagues. Uh, business partners um, may respond differently to you being coerced than your family members. Family members just want you to get back safely, right? And business colleagues, um, you know, maybe they just want your money or something, but, um, you know, they, they certainly um, uh, aren't going to respond in the same way to a family that will do anything to get you back in the event that there's, there's funds at risk. Um, in fact, um, along that uh, mix of motivations recommendation, the other multi-party multi-sig recommendation that I think we should all be making is that if you have multi-party multi-sig, you should be regularly testing uh, your, your multi-party participants. And by testing, I mean things like if you ask them to help sign a transaction, do they actually verify over a secondary channel or, or third channel that you really intended to do this transaction? And if they don't actually do a good job with that verification task, you should, you should remove them from the multi-sig group. <laughs> yeah, no, that's that makes a lot of sense, right? It's it's not just literally checking the health of that key and checking there's been no bit rot of the key. It's also the security practices and awareness of the individual who's holding that key. That's right. And so for for that test, um, one thing I've been thinking about is that well, what do you ask them to sign? And you could ask them to sign garbage that just wouldn't work at all. Or what you do is you ask them to sign a transaction that moves all of the funds into a new multi-sig setup that they aren't included in. And so if they do sign it and you didn't <laughs> intend it, then, yeah. But that's almost the opposite of the, um, oh, right, so if they do sign it, then, yeah, gotcha. So I, for a second, I thought it was, like, the other way around. So then it's, like, if if she, uh, what's the what's the one? If she drowns, she wasn't a witch, and if she's alive, then she is a witch, and let's burn her at the stake or whatever. <laughs> but I guess it's the other way around, right? <laughs> okay, so... I think the other component that's difficult with some of this, and this is mentioned in the Smart Custody book, and I might even mention it with uh, Christopher Allen and ask for his comment on it, is this concept of process fatigue, right? We can design the most amazing protocol and the most you know, complex procedure, but then the reality is if people don't spend the time to read and understand that procedure and to correctly execute it every time, then there is that risk of process fatigue. And I suppose 
you know, we are human, we're fallible, we can make a mistake on these things. Have you kind of seen any examples of that or you've witnessed that in your own uh, Bitcoin storage and Bitcoin journey? Oh, no, I never get fatigued, no. Um, <laughs> but, but for this problem in particular, um, in my opinion, uh, software should be doing a lot of the work for you. And then the user should only be required to do certain things that software is incapable of do, doing, like moving a laptop from one end of the vault to another or, um, you know, like not, not even necessarily finding a place to store a vault or, or a bank with a safe. You know, that could be automated by software as well. Uh, it just happens that uh, banks um, don't currently support that kind of feature. Um, but, yeah, it should be software as much as possible. And then the other thought that I've been having is that uh, – you know, in, in modern society, um, gamification of, of all sorts of loot boxes and so on has, has really just been completely psychologically addicting and even devastating. It would be interesting if we could apply that actually to fight process fatigue, because it's very interesting that someone can like click a single button on a phone as a, and consider that a game you know, all day. Um, but at the same time, there's this other process fatigue of of running through checklists and everything. So maybe if the two can be combined of like checklists, but also gamification or something through that software that I mentioned, then then that might be something worth doing. But all of this really requires uh, empirical testing. You know, we need to collect large amounts of data from people trying different ways of securing their Bitcoin and seeing what happens. Are people able to follow these steps? Are people able to protect their assets? And if you follow up a year later, do they still have them? Or did they decide, well, that stuff was complicated, so I've just been, you know, storing my passphrase on a sticky note on my, on my front door or whatever. You know, we need to collect this data and find out. Right. Yeah. And I suppose to to one of the points you were saying earlier, it's around standardizing or what is the standard of care. And I think that also flows into this idea of levels of security, right? So at the start, people, you know, if it's like forty bucks or whatever, they can leave. They can safely just leave that on their phone. It's not a big deal. How do you how do you think about trying to uh, create levels, if you will, on how paranoid to be, uh, how much put work to put in at each level? Well, that's a hard question, but I'll give you some cypherpunk perspective on this, which is that cryptography is an incredible tool that that gives you basically asymmetric power, meaning anyone can generate a, a, a 4096-bit key and encrypt data and um, you know, there's no way to break that computationally right now. And anyone can do that. Any, almost any smartphone can do that, right? That is a, an extremely powerful tool. Um, another example is um, another way to, to cheaply create these types of cryptographic secrets is uh, something that I've been calling delete the bits. And um, Adam Back introduced this to the Bitcoin community a long time ago on Bitcoin Talk and cited even further history where other people had come up with this. But in Delete the Bits, the idea is that you have a secret and it can be decomposed into a collection of bits and uh, you delete some of them. And then you store the, the shorter version. And what this does is it forces you to do a brute, brute force parallel search to recover the original secret, which has some amount of cost. It's kind of like the delayed um, time lock encryption from Peter Todd. Um, and um, by doing this, um, you know, you can you can make a secret that costs a million dollars in computational power to get the original secret back. And any phone can do this cheaply. The, the task of deleting bits from a string or a value is something that any phone can do very cheaply. 
and suddenly you have a way to create a $10 million secret right there. So I think that's really powerful. And the idea of having these levels of protection, I don't know if that makes sense. If you have a very cheap ability to make a very cryptographically strong protocol that is cheap and simple to use, um, then you might as well use that to protect even small amounts of money. Got it. So it's almost breaking a little bit that idea that you should... Uh... You know, try to increase the security as as you go. And uh, I think I heard I uh, one good point I've heard is really that people have to think in terms of uh, what if their coins are worth ten times more than what they really are right now, because that may be the reality given Bitcoin and you know the years to come. Um, also, there is this problem of getting enough entropy or enough randomness in the generation of keys, because we as humans are fallible again, and we are too liable to uh, repeating the same patterns and so on, generating insufficient randomness. And again, this is a topic mentioned in the recent Smart Custody book as well. Uh, do you have any thoughts around uh, the use of the TRNG and random number generation in hardware wallets and then doing things like, for example, with the cold card, how you can roll dice to add entropy or in Glacier Protocol, I think it, it involves uh, 62 dice rolls to generate some additional entropy. Yeah, I definitely like the dice roll protocols. And in particular, one of the ideas that's been floating around in the hardware wallet community lately is this idea of a hardware wallet that has uh, multiple chips on it, like heterogeneous hardware from like multiple different manufacturers from different nations. And then you combine the entropy from multiple chips. Um, because if you have a if you have a, a random value and you add another random value to it, then it, it's going to be random, right? Or if you add something non-random to a random value, it's random. That's just one of the properties of, of high entropy values. Um, uh, uh, so anyway, having multiple chips is an interesting approach. Um, and the thinking behind that is that if you're paranoid that a government has backdoored your random number generator or has biased it in some way, then um, what are the chances that the same uh, government has the same bias in all of these chips from all of these different countries? <laughs> right, yeah. And I suppose, uh, I guess, depends how paranoid you want to get. But uh, even if you're buying dice, you want to make sure, how, how do you make sure that the dice themselves are not biased? That's right, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I guess you want to mix it with other entropy then, yeah. Gotcha. Um, and so uh, I'm also interested to ask around this question of hardware wallets compared with other constructions. So as I understand, there is the use of HSM modules or hardware security modules in some uh, Bitcoin custody contexts. How do, how do you think about, you know, the idea of, you know, I think this also kind of plays a little bit into, um, like, for example, Trace Mayer is big on this idea of using Purism laptops and using generic hardware as opposed to a specific piece of hardware. Because if I see you've got a cold card, I know you've got Bitcoin. So, uh, yeah, but I suppose let's just start with uh, the, I guess, the value of HSMs versus hardware wallets and the use of secure enclaves. So, okay, well, other than the, the previous things we talked about earlier, um, for commodity equipment, one of the interesting observations is that there are many different manufacturers that are making all of this equipment. So from a supply chain integrity perspective, you have the opportunity to go to many different stores, even in your own city, buy different laptops, buy different computers, and be reasonably confident that you have a, a good diversity across multiple supply chains. Uh, going back to hardware security modules, I personally am... Uh, have questioned their utility and value. Um, 
in particular, the only hardware security module that I think really provides a lot of advantage is the one that has a form of tamper resistance, where in the event that it, the system is physically tampered with, it deletes the secret. If it doesn't have this capability, then um, you, I, I'm not sure it's as valuable as people think it is. Gotcha. Um, and what about this uh, concept of having an open source secure element? As I understand, that's one difficulty, right? So uh, I understand the ledger has a secure element, however, it's closed source. Uh, there are efforts and thought you know, being put into this idea, but as I understand, the cost is perhaps at this point prohibitive. So as an example, in programming, uh, you want to uh, uh, include mitigations for common attacks such as side channel attacks. That's for software. For hardware, you also want to mitigate side channel attacks as well and a variety of other things. Uh, and that's where secure elements and secure chips come from. That's, that's their primary utility there. And the idea is that even from you know, power analysis, voltage analysis, um, or other timing techniques to gather data, uh, you won't be able to extract internal state from those machines. And ideally, secure elements shouldn't be doing speculative executions or specter and meltdown and other um, other attacks that, that depend on uh, speculative execution don't work, which is a very fascinating one itself. Um, if you're not aware, in speculative execution, modern processors actually execute instructions before they're supposed to, uh, to speculate about the outcomes, because it's faster to do that um, than to wait for data to be fetched from other peripherals on the, on the motherboard. And so as a result, computers are constantly executing code that shouldn't be executing. Um, and then the, the results are presumably erased. But unfortunately, people have discovered that there's actually ways to do this in a way where you can cause a certain state to be preserved inside of the speculative execution hardware on the chip. And this can um, influence um, certain timing of other instructions and executions and things like that that can be analyzed to either extract information or in some cases inject information. So anyway, ideally a secure element should not be using uh, speculative execution. Uh, one of the interesting trends in the community is that I'm seeing the very beginnings, and can't emphasize that enough, it's still very nascent, but I, I'm definitely seeing a lot of interest towards uh, some sort of community open source secure element project. Um, probably my best guess is that it will be based around RISC-V. Um, but yeah, I mean, I mean, part of the problem is that to get a chip manufactured, you're looking at uh, you know many thousands of dollars um, Although it depends. I mean, for a secure element, for the purposes of Bitcoin and transaction signing and, and hardware wallets, you actually don't need 16 nanometer or, or lower uh, node, node resolution. You could actually get away with like 180 nanometer or something like that, which is a few generations old and therefore much cheaper. In fact, many university labs have uh, you know um, micromechanical engineering and semiconductor manufacturing facilities on campus. Oh, there you go. Sort of switching it up a little bit, uh, there was recently a bit of a... Oh, it's not that recent now, I guess. There was this uh, alert key saga, and I know you were involved with that. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what happened there? Well, okay, sure. So um, the short story is that I released the alert key, which was um, a, a secret uh, passed down from from Satoshi uh, for the Bitcoin system. I, I guess I'll get the background now. Um, for those who don't know, and it's sort of an irrelevant detail now, really, but the Bitcoin network used to have something called the alert system. And the alert system was a message passing layer where if the alert key, in particular the alert private key, signed a message, 
then every Bitcoin core node had the alert public key and could verify that this message was signed by the alert private key. And this message could be um, uh, displayed to users, um, such as in the event of, I don't know, uh, the, the hash function being broken or, or elliptic curve cryptography being broken or the Diffie-Hellman assumption breaking down or something, or, or even the discrete logarithm problem, I mean. Um, uh, anyway, it be, it's problematic though, because it's kind of a form of centralization. And there were also concerns that the Japanese government had access to the key as a result of Mt. Gox. Long story there. Um, and, and just over time, the question was, well, who actually has this key? A lot of people ended up having this key. And, and furthermore, another problem was that all of these um, copycat forks of Bitcoin that just fork Bitcoin and change the name and, and whatever, uh, a lot of them copied the original alert key. So if there's a message on one network, it would propagate and be valid on other networks. Uh, some of the altcoins changed it, so it's not all of them. But anyway, this was a problem for some of them. And so as much as Bitcoin Core developers wanted to get rid of this alert system, um, and they, they disabled it um, uh, quite a while back, they couldn't, um, they couldn't um, um, completely get rid of everything here because um, there was still this secret, right? And, and the secret... Concern about it is that by having the secret, um, there, there there is the opportunity for for certain fraudulent behavior, like people claiming to be Satoshi or something. You know, if they have the alert key, then oh, maybe they're Satoshi or whatever. Um, and so the idea was to release the private key so that everyone could have it. And this, in theory, eliminates the value of the key. Uh, if everyone has it, then therefore you don't know um, who is actually using it. So it becomes um, uh, when someone signs a message, you just don't know who did it, and it's uh, no longer important. And it took quite a while to, to um, for the community to be willing to release the alert key because the concern was of all these altcoins that had copied the key. And the question was, well, if we release this, um, then if we release this secret, then is it the case that all of these altcoins are going to have like negative things happen to them as people like use this key to like. Uh, you know, conduct fraud on these other networks or something to like trick users into. There's all sorts of edge cases that you can come up with and attacks and so on. And so um, um, it, it was a number of years and and you know a, a large amount of certainty that it was time to release the secret. And then it was. And uh, I did that on stage at a conference. And <laughs> uh, the rest is history. It's like completely gone now. But you know that that brings up another subject, though, um, which is the the you know this effect where all these altcoins had copied something from Bitcoin, and as a consequence, they um, as a consequence they uh, had had basically code rot or something. Um, you know, from a th this also shows up in another way, though, which is for vulnerabilities um, and security problems. So in Bitcoin, um, we're, of course, very interested in maintaining the secure operation of the Bitcoin Core wallet and, and all the other related software, right? Well, um, unfortunately, it's, it's a bad idea to announce every single vulnerability immediately, because if you do so, then attackers can attack Bitcoin users that haven't upgraded to the mitigation yet. So sometimes there has to be a delay there. But it, it, in further cases, though, it's not always... Um, I guess you might even say it's not always moral to release information about vulnerabilities because of all the forks of Bitcoin. 
Now, you could argue, well, Bitcoin core developers shouldn't be responsible for all these losers who have copied Bitcoin or whatever, and we shouldn't be responsible for their security problems. But on the other hand, I mean, that doesn't necessarily mean that you should announce a vulnerability for a large amount of unmaintained software. So it's it's difficult to reason about, and, and there's a fine line. And um, uh, yeah, I mean, it's all related to responsible disclosure, right? I mean, what, what does responsible disclosure really mean? It's a term from the security industry and, um, you know, infosec industry, uh, cybersecurity or, or whatever you want to call it. Um, but, you know, what's responsible? Is it is not disclosing responsible? If you fix it and don't disclose, is that responsible? If you disclose immediately, I mean, there's a lot of people that could be negatively affected. And, you know, in the future, as Bitcoin becomes more valuable, as the whole uh, crypto ecosystem becomes more more valuable, you know, there's a lot of money on the line. For sure. And I think even here, there have been concerns raised by people like, for example, Angela Walsh or on around, oh, how centralized is Bitcoin? And so in that example, who were the people who knew about the vulnerability before other people? Did they get an advantage? There are some of those questions that could get raised as well. Uh, but there are legitimate reasons why the vulnerability is just not openly disclosed to the world and sundry, because obviously that is going to expose a lot of people to a great level of risk. That's right. Yeah. I mean, some of these are just really tough decisions and there's like, sometimes there might not even be a right answer really. Yeah. There's no easy answers on these sometimes. Um, also, I had another one I was keen to ask you about, uh, Shamir's secret sharing. So obviously this is a popular thing. Uh, it has enjoyed a, a fair level of uh, discussion within the Bitcoin community over the years. And recently, the, the team behind Trezor, Satoshi Labs, came out with Slip39, which is their own uh, proposal or standard for the use of Shamir's secret sharing. Now, I understand there are some sort of contrasting views on this. Uh, what's your view on uh, Shamir's secret sharing and where does it make sense? Where does it not really make sense? Yeah, so I'll start with that in, in describing Shamir's secret sharing in this scheme. Uh, for those who don't know, it's quite interesting. The idea is that if you have a secret, there's a way that you can split up the secret into multiple shares or shards. And um, you can also set up the scheme in a way where you can say, well, I want the secret to be uh, uh, reassembled only if you have all shares. But you can also do thresholds as well, where you can have like three of four or uh, two of five or five of ten. Uh, it's very similar to multisig in that sense, but there's important differences. And these important differences uh, can tend to reduce the, the use cases for some of your secret sharing. So here are the differences. In multisig, you can pass a message to each multisig participant and they can sign a message without revealing their private key. That's great. In Shamir Secret Sharing, unfortunately, even if it's a five of seven uh, sharding scheme where you have to have five of the shares to get the original secret, um, the problem is that each of these shares must be revealed. And in practice, they're usually going to be revealed to a single party. And that single party then recomputes the secret. Um, and uh, as a consequence of this, an area where I think Shamir Secret Sharing is particularly useful is something like password recovery for a user, where you don't want to write down your password. Instead, you write down multiple shares, and you can distribute the shares to either friends, family, or different places in your house, or whatever it is. Um, and um, um, and then when you uh, need to recover your password, you go to them, you recover the shares, and you recompute it. The other, the other thing to point out is that besides the single person that goes around to, to collect the secrets is um, 
they get reassembled into the full secret on a single machine. So then the secret is now assembled on that machine. And that machine has to be protected and air-gapped and things like that. Otherwise, uh, maybe it's exfiltrating the secret. So it can, it, there's a bunch of danger, um, <laughs> dangerous elements to this uh, to consider. Um, so yeah, slip 39, um, it's great to see that deployed by Trezor. Um, uh, you know, people can go and use this now um, with their hardware wallet. Um, at uh, rebooting Web of Trust number nine in Prague recently, I was just there a few weeks ago, um, we got around and discussed the idea of a binary encoding format for Shamir secret sharing. And the benefit of this is, um, the idea is, it's very nascent, I should, I should emphasize, is that um, it might be useful to have another standard for Shamir secret sharing uh, that goes beyond slip 39, because slip 39 is limited in a few ways that, that totally makes sense for um, what slip 39 is designed for. But in particular, um, Shamir secret sharing doesn't actually have um, um, a limit of 16, right? 16 of 16, that was something from slip 39, really. Um, if you want, you could have a 30 of 50 uh, secret, you know? Uh, you could create 50 shares. Um, I'm not, now in practice, I'm not sure anyone really would, but um, I think it's important to be able to have standards that accommodate it for things like that. And, and in, in this kind of standard, the, the bag of elements that you need are things like serialization formats, encoding and decoding, um, and you need to have the written down in the public document and things like that. Anyway, that, that's at an, an, a nascent early stage at the moment. And Oh, and the other important thing is an actual implementation, of course. <laughs> Uh, and, and I've heard of different ways of this being implemented as well for a Bitcoin custody context. So some ideas I've heard would be things like, okay, so obviously in the single signature case, you might split up your shamirs into three or five or whatever you want. Uh, another option might be you might have a multi-signature and one of those keys might be uh, kept in a shamirs share for some sort of redundancy or backup reasons. Uh, and then I guess another context that I've heard it uh, explained was my earlier interview with Michael Flaxman, where he explained this idea of, oh, you might do something like, you know, you might do multi-seek three or five, but then the underlying seed for that three or five, you might split that up into, say, a six of 11 Shamir's secret sharing. Can you comment a little bit on some of those cases? Which ones do you think make more sense and which ones are maybe a little vulnerable? Well... Um, yes, yeah, so so an interesting observation there, okay, so you do three of five multi-sig on Bitcoin on-chain, and then each of those keys is an 11 of 12 or something like that. Yeah, and so one of the interesting observations here is that with Shamir Secret Sharing, you can actually use larger group sizes than are possible on-chain in Bitcoin today. Although with short signatures, uh, you know, look out for that. Um, uh, the use case I've heard in a commercial context for Shamir secret sharing is actually um, this idea of rotating out team members. And so the idea is that um, you have a secret and um, you have maybe a team, you know, you have your three of five, so it's a team of five or something. And the idea is that maybe someone leaves the company and they still have that secret technically, or you should assume that they do. And so the procedure is you take the other remaining members and they come together and it is a bit of a, another one of those delete the key things, trusted setup things, where uh, they they recompute the secret and then they create new shares. And the idea is that they delete the old one. And so if they delete their old ones, then the employee that left with their one secret 
can no longer, there's nothing else in the universe now that can be recombined with their one secret to reconstruct the secret. So this is a way of doing team rotation. Um, this, this use case um, is, is particularly important to Unchained Capital. Uh, they recently uh, released um, a software project called Hermit that does Shamir secret sharing with, um, with encryption. And the idea is that each user types in their decryption passphrase on a single machine that's air-gapped and uses QR codes to communicate with the outside world. And um, the interesting thing about the Hermit project that I really like is, um, is that when you type these uh, secrets into this machine, it unlocks the secret for, for the, presumably the private key, but only for 15 seconds at a time. And I really like that. So it's a 15 second timeout. And um, if you're uh, after that time, like if you've looked away to get a cup of coffee briefly or something and the time runs out, then it deletes the secrets. And I think that's a, a really good uh, security practice. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, as part of this series, actually, I will be getting Drew on as well, so I'll make sure to uh, go into that with him. But yeah, so I suppose just to summarize some of the thoughts around Shamir's, so essentially the main risk with Shamir's is that essentially at the point you are reconstituting the seed altogether, that is the point that you are vulnerable. And so you would have to try to do it in a very secure location. And then at that point, you might then need to do whatever your new setup is. So otherwise, you might be leaving yourself vulnerable uh, to you know getting attacked at that point and physically attacked. Uh, I, perhaps what you could do is set up, you know, the new setup in advance and spend like and then get together and do your Shamir's kind of uh, com combination and then spend at that point into the new secure setup, if you will. One of the things to watch out for in the future on the research front is a, a variation of Shamir secret sharing called verifiable secret sharing or linear secret sharing. And these are different secret sharing schemes that are similar, but they have a different property. In particular, there are some of these schemes that act more like multisig, where they can generate partial signatures on a message without bringing the secret shares together into the same room or same computer. And um, this is obviously advantageous from a security perspective. Um, um, and then they still retain the property where if you want to recover the original master secret, you can get the shares all together and recover the secret. So it gets, kind of gets the best of both worlds. Um, so that's something to watch out for now. As far as I'm aware, there's no implementation of that for Bitcoin yet. Um, so it's not, it's not quite ready. And, and, just uh, in the incubation phase, I guess you could call it. Got it, got it. Um, one other thing that just came up to my mind, I meant to ask this earlier, but just around this idea of the vaults construction or your vaults proposal and the idea of having many, uh, if you will, uh, spending uh, like the 1% uh, for each uh, portion of the UTXO or whatever, whatever is being spent, rather, um, does that have a very large script and therefore a very large on-chain footprint. Is that just one of the trade-offs there? Well, um, this, the individual scripts on each of the outputs in the transaction are, in my opinion, small. However, uh, because there's 100 of them, yes, it does actually increase on-chain fees and cost of doing this transaction. In fact, um, it is possible in the scheme to change it from lose at most 1% to lose at most 0.1%. But the problem is that this requires uh, 10 times more outputs, right? Um, so, uh, that's, that's problematic, but, but, um, uh, if you're willing to pay the fee, then, then you can do it that way. I'm sure. Um, yeah. And, and it may make sense for someone with a lot of money, right? So, 
that yeah yeah absolutely absolutely yeah i mean when i made the proposal on the bitcoin dev mailing list um i for whatever reason i just chose one percent it's a simple number i guess yeah i mean theoretically you could just do 10 percent, right and just do it like that right it's not a it's not really that big of a yeah i guess it's it's really percent though you're gonna look back and be like ooh, why did i set it so high <laughs> true but i mean they could set that number anywhere right they could say why one percent why not point one and then yeah so on but yeah i suppose it's about setting a threshold that you're comfortable and you know going with that i suppose yeah yeah all right, uh, let's talk a bit about, so I know you mentioned around Smart Custody, so that is a book that you have contributed to with Christopher Allen, and I know there's a workshop on with that. Was there anything else you wanted to mention about that, just for listeners who are curious, uh, interested to know more about it? Um, yeah, I'm, no, I mean, if you're interested in learning more about it, check it out, smartcustody.com. A lot of materials on there, uh, a lot of, you know, just free resources, and then in the future there will be more workshops, including one that focuses more on multisig. Um, and also uh, custody. The previous one was really focused around personal cold storage. Okay. Um, let's also talk about uh, one of uh, the things that you're very well known for is uh, your work on transcripts at various Bitcoin conferences. So uh, tell us, I think the listeners would love to know a little bit about, you know, just how do you do it? <laughs> well, uh, so the way that I do it is I just type very quickly on a QWERTY keyboard on a laptop that I bring with me and I... Um, I have a website, you know, and I use Git, and I Git push the transcript, usually before the speaker sits down from standing up on stage. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm just a fast typist, I guess. Um, I've, I've competed on, um, on various typing websites before, and um, one of the results I'm most proud of is that out of 5 million uh, competitors, I ended up being ranked number 30. So I'm not the fastest in the world, but I'm 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 pretty damn fast. <laughs> right, because I think the average newsreader speed is say 180 words per minute, and you know something like 80 80 to 100 words per minute for a typist is considered relatively fast, and typically transcription typists might be anywhere like 120, 140 even. So I guess that's kind of like the rough ranges that a, a transcription typist might be operating at, whereas you're kind of operating higher than that even so i, I type at a um on a really good day i type at 200 words a minute which is pretty fast but court stenographers uh type even faster than that they can they've been known to do 250 words a minute or even 350 words a minute and higher and that's because of specialized hardware they have and then also a whole uh, system of abbreviations that they use um uh, it's actually interesting. Um, it turns out court stenographers um, are actually quite, uh, paid quite a bit, actually. Uh, it's kind of interesting. Fantastic. There's a backup career there. Uh, I actually used to do uh, transcription typing myself, but mine was more like uh, recorded police interviews kind of thing and was outsourced to a company. So I would sit there and sit there with a pedal and stuff. I thought I was fast and I'm like 120 words per minute. No, nowhere near your level. So I, I started doing uh, transcripts all the way back in uh, <laughs> back in high school as a freshman. And uh, it, it, was, it was based on this idea that I wanted to prove to... I, I think it was to like the principal of the school or something that all, all of these classes were like a total waste of time. And like, if you actually looked at the, the spoken content in a, in a, in a day, you know, 80% of it was just garbage and you know, it was just a total waste of time or something. Anyway, admirable, uh, goal. Um, certainly, I certainly typed a lot, but it turned out nobody cared. 
<laughs> You're not transcribing this conversation right now, are you? No, no, not right now. Unfortunately, so, <laughs> I'm kidding. No, it's a real problem though. Like, so I can type what other people are saying, but when I'm speaking, I can't type that down. So I ended up recording everything else that everyone says except for what I say. And you would think it should actually be the opposite. It should be that um, if you're saying something important, then it should be written down. But unfortunately, I'm just that's beyond my skill. <laughs> well, yeah, I guess you could record it and retype it, but then it's a question of time, right? Like ultimately, your time is worth more doing you know, other things than literally sitting and typing. Well, so exactly, the value of time is one of the reasons why I do this at conferences. Is if I'm sitting there in the audience and I'm listening to a presentation, I might as well be taking very elaborate notes in a transcript. And furthermore, it means that in the future, if I want to go and revisit this talk, I don't have to watch the video. And many people find that to be um, a, a benefit of these transcripts is that they don't have to watch the video. Um, a lot of people even consider videos to be rude, you know, because it's imposing on your time as a professional. Um, whereas a transcript is, is so much easier to skim and read and extract the important parts from. And if there is something that's really confusing, like someone pointing to a diagram in the transcript, which I can never get that right because I would have to transcribe the diagram, which is impossible. Um, you know, then they can go check the video or something. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it is a difficult thing because there's a lot of important information that's being conveyed through, uh, you know, these talks and even sometimes on podcasts, right? So even with my podcast, I try, I'm lately, I'm trying to make sure we get transcripts going for it. Um, so that people can kind of quickly get to the part they need. Yeah, I, I, I've actually been uh, quite curious about that because I do see the transcripts on your podcast and I'm wondering who makes them. Like, do they get all the Bitcoin terms right on the first pass? <laughs> no, definitely not. So I use this website called rev.com uh, and so they use human transcription. I've tried some of the automated ones. Unfortunately, they just, especially with the different accents and the technical terminology, they rarely get it. But rev.com, I think they do all right at least they'll try to google terms and try to get them but there will be some terms that are just hard to google or there'll be specific technical terms now there's a little glossary section i can put in okay xpub private key you know multi-signature or whatever like different terms or shamirs right so they know what to google or search and i think they quickly do a quick search but obviously it's not um perfect so i spend a bit of time going back through the transcript to kind of fix it up uh and get it ready for when i actually post it on my website um, but hopefully that's uh, valuable for people, uh, but I'm, I'm not really sure. We'll see. No, I, I certainly find it valuable. Um, you know, a funny story. A few years ago, um, I think it was Mark Friedenbach um, tapped me on the shoulder at a conference and said, Brian, you know, you're, you're a fast typist, sure, and it's impressive and all, and I'm glad you're doing this. But you're also a skilled software engineer, and why not just do a machine learning project to do speech recognition for conferences and just automate this whole thing? And I looked at him and I was like, oh yeah, okay. So then I went and built a machine learning implementation of speech recognition. It was based off of Beidou's uh, uh, deep speech. And uh, since that time, Mozilla has actually done a really uh, fantastic implementation of that, and an open source one at that. Um, the problem with my version was that I had a 20% uh, error rate with words, so it didn't quite work out. Uh, but, but the idea, though, was that I was training on um, audiobooks, because with audiobooks you have text and then you have the audio. And so it's a really good um, training source. Yeah, I think that's the difficulty, right? Like, I think the guys at Rev do a decent job, considering. If you're not like a Bitcoiner, it's kind of difficult to know all the terms. Um, but yeah, it's even harder for a computer to figure those out because a lot of, I guess, the spoken word and so on, a lot of these technical terms or names even are not really, they're not in books, you know, so you kind of, 
I guess there's a bit of model training or whatever that has to happen before it gets to that level. So one of the yeah. observations I've had about these transcripts is that people only find them valuable if they're available immediately after a meeting or after the presentation. If they're uh, posted two weeks later, I find that people often don't care anymore. It doesn't matter what was said, really. What matters is that they're available immediately and that people have that link and they're able to go back and reference it as soon as possible. Yeah, I mean, for me, I try to, I definitely, even for me with my podcast transcripts, I try to make sure they are ready at the point I release them nowadays. So I definitely do try to get that going. Um, but it does, really, it does add a bit more admin time and so on of me correcting the transcript and so on and getting it kind of ready to go. But yeah, I mean, that's, hopefully people find value out of that. Um, yeah, were there any uh, interesting topics at some of the recent conferences that you've been to? I know there were a couple in Tel Aviv just recently. Were there any you wanted to touch on there? Uh, yeah, so in Tel Aviv, um, there were there was a, a lot of conferences. There was um, the Decentralized Financial Architecture Workshop, um, which was trying to pair developers with regulators. Um, that was certainly interesting. A, a lot of uh, debate occurred over the travel rule. <laughs> Uh, then there was Bitcoin Edge Dev Plus Plus at Tel Aviv University, which was a two-day training session uh, going over basic Bitcoin data structures and uh, basic concepts, but also some advanced proposals. Um, all of those videos will be posted, and there's transcripts for, for everything there. And then there was Scaling Bitcoin, which was a two-day conference at Tel Aviv University again. And uh, Scaling Bitcoin, of course, is more focused on uh, academic research and advanced prototypes and concepts. Right. And, uh, you know, it's a it's a good pairing to have training and then more advanced concepts. I think that's a good good way to do good format for this. Fantastic. Uh, and uh, I know, Brian, you're also involved with administering the Bitcoin dev mailing list. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So this is this is somewhat janitorial work, I suppose. But um, uh, some uh, anyway, for a few years now, I've been part of the, the team that's been um helping email get through the mailing list and, you know, kicking out the spam and things like that. Um, uh, one of the a few years ago, we transitioned to being hosted by Linux Foundation, and they've been very generous with their resources. Um, however, Linux Foundation is migrating away from email, and they're kicking us off as a result. Um, they're not just kicking us off, they're kicking everyone else off as well. So as a result, we've been working on coming up with an alternative system set up and making sure that all the permalinks are the same. And thankfully, Linux Foundation has agreed to that, to make all the, the permalinks for the current mailing list archives, which many people reference in presentations and papers and around the web. It's, it's so important to me to have the, um, the, those hyperlinks uh, remain, um, remain there. Um, in fact, if you look around the internet, the half-life of any given link is like less than a few years at this point. But in theory, it should be simple to maintain text email archives for indefinitely. So uh, let's let's hope that, uh, that that continues to be the case. Um, but anyway, um, uh, yeah, I mean, there's there's tens of thousands of subscribers on the Bitcoin dev mailing list, and uh, um, you know, one of the one of the concerns when migrating is like, should really all these email addresses be copied over to a new mailing list when the other one closes? You know, it's sort of a privacy thing. Maybe not everyone wants that. But at the same time, a lot of people might be subscribed for the sake of like security updates whenever those updates do occur. Um, you know, recently, um, as an example, on the Lightning Dev mailing list, there was a signed message from Lalu saying, you know, upgrade your nodes. There's a, there's a, a vulnerability. You know, 
if people if the mailing list was migrated to another server and people weren't subscribed nobody would would have received that message so you know there's trade-offs on on both ways of doing this i i think you probably do have to just keep everyone who was already on it until they opt out right yeah i mean that's 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 my current thinking yeah yeah okay well, yeah, I mean, I definitely appreciate uh, being able to see some of the discussions live as they're happening, although it's sometimes it, it's Bitcoin. It feels like you're drinking from a fire hose, right? Because if you're subscribed to uh, Bitcoin dev mailing list and the Lightning dev mailing list and you're trying to follow what's going on, it can be a lot to get into. Um, but yeah, look, uh, let's, talk, let's talk about one of your other passions. So I know obviously Bitcoin is a big passion of yours, but I know you're also big into this whole idea of transhumanism, biohacking, and so on. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Right. So before I got into Bitcoin, um, one of my main focuses was in biotech and something called do-it-yourself biology. The idea here is that uh, it's possible to um, work on biotech projects outside of the context of, of academic labs at, at colleges. And um, there's all sorts of systemic effects for why other people are interested in this. Like, for example, there's, there's a huge number of biology students and grad students out there that get disenfranchised from the academic system. And then they realize that some of the projects that they want to work on, they can pursue at home with, with the, their own means and resources without working with a university. Um, uh, so in this area of, of biohacking and genetic engineering, I, I certainly have talked about my interests here before. Um, I suppose, though, for, for people who are unfamiliar, one recent example that might be interesting to them is that at a conference um, in Vegas recently called Biohack the Planet, um, one of the presentations went over a, a very uh, typical uh, biohacking project. And this was a project to make something called Slibera, which is actually a knockoff piracy version of Glybera. Glybera is well known as being the most expensive drug in the world at $1.2 million as a gene therapy to fix lipoprotein deficiency. And it works. The problem is that it costs $1.2 million. Well, Slibera is the garage biohacker version. And um, you know the, the presentation went on to, to show that a lot of this work can be replicated uh, in in your own garage for about seven thousand dollars approximately, and that's a million dollar drug. You know, as drug prices rise, you look at these prices, and then you you really have to start wondering, what is the actual cost of going and getting lab equipment and putting this thing together yourself? It's not quite clear to me that that abiding entirely by um, by regulatory agencies and what they decree to, to be available to the general public is the best way to, to fix uh, health problems that, that might be rapidly leading to end-of-life scenarios, you know? Absolutely. And I think, um, to my mind, this is calling uh, a big – one of the big intellectual influences on my mind is the work of Stefan Kinsella. He is well known for being anti-intellectual property. And I think also from a libertarian point of view, we would be anti, you know, the FDA, right? We would have like free market regulation of things as opposed to government regulation of who may ingest what drug or take whatever procedure. Uh, but perhaps in, a, in the Bitcoin future, we might see a lot more jurisdictional competition and maybe we would see medical tourism and people might just go to some other jurisdiction and get a procedure done there or go to some other jurisdiction and make Slibera there, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. So in my opinion, 
regulatory agencies shouldn't really be uh, so paternalistic. Instead, I think the better model would be something more like sandboxes, where people can opt in into the Wild West, or rating agencies, where they do very thorough investigations and give a rating based off of their findings. Um, but other than that, I don't think that they should be able to just outright ban things or or prevent people from getting access to the medicines that they think they need. Right. Uh, and I suppose now, again, I'm with you on this, but I suppose the, the person who's pro-intellectual property at this point may say, oh, but this company has spent X, Y, and Z number of dollars trying to develop this technology. Why do you guys think you should be able to just make it on your own without you know, having regard for that? And I think the kind of Kinsella response or so might be that, look, the whole uh, you can't own that. It comes to what what is there a property right in. Uh, but what's your view there? Well, in in my opinion, I actually think that the the claim that you you have to have a patent to prevent other people from developing the technology is a little strange. I think that one way to do this and to to look at it is that if you have this technology that's really valuable, you should be developing it. And if people for whatever reason, feel the need to develop it themselves, then you're not doing a good job. You know, you can operate a business where you offer this information and these systems for for utilizing whatever this patent really is, and people will gladly do business with you if it makes sense. But if there's there's um, you know either either unreasonable licensing requirements or whatever it is, then yeah, of course people are going to try to do it themselves. It, of course they are. It it completely makes sense. Right, and it becomes uh, at what point is it cost effective for each individual person to try some of these things? And it may be like uh, the famed Tesla model, right? At the start, something's only available to the rich, but then over time, it very quickly becomes available for everyone. And I think that's potentially a model that we may see with uh, biohacking and biotech. Do you have any uh, thoughts on that idea? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. It comes comes back to like exit and voice, right? If you don't have voice, you know, you exit the system, and that's really what medical tourism is. It's this idea that you know, in the U.S., healthcare is broken, and especially healthcare billing, for that matter. Um, and the idea is that you can get cheaper prices by going overseas to get your procedures. I, I think that that will also apply from a regulatory perspective as well. A lot of people in the cryptocurrency industry end up going overseas for getting access to financial services that are more modern, right? Fantastic. And I know, obviously, uh, so I uh, probably have many shared listeners with Marty Ben, and I know you recently uh, did an episode with him on that, uh, on, the, on Marty's great show as well, so I recommend listeners check that out. And yeah, I guess also I was just curious to get your thoughts on that idea that uh, will humans ever live forever? Do you think that's actually possible, or do you think it's sort of just never going to happen? I think that extremely long lifespans are definitely uh, physically and, and theoretically possible. Um, the question is, like, when were we going to be able to develop that technology? When will it happen? Um, not quite sure. I guess if you're interested in that question, follow Aubrey de Grey. Um, living forever, though, I mean, pedantically, if I may, is 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 uh, something very hard to guarantee, right? No one knows if something will really live literally forever. In fact, forever in a, in a physics context might not be a real thing. Um, yeah, yeah. Instead, though, I mean, like, yeah, I mean, I think that in the future it might be possible to that humans will be able to have a thousand-year lifespan or a ten-thousand-year lifespan. I think that uh, biologically, if if you remain uh, healthy and relatively young throughout your lifespan, then uh, indefinite age should be achievable. 
Wow, yeah. Uh, and I guess the, the other question then, uh, it might be too late for people like you and me, but let's say a generation or two down from us, maybe it's a possibility for them. Uh, and also a kind of at what point, uh, how old are you? Uh, can they reverse age you? Uh, I guess that's an even more tough question than to take someone who's already kind of healthy and keep them healthy. Yeah, so I have a, an interesting perspective here. I mean, everyone wants um, some sort of gene therapy that, that'll, you know, reverse their aging process or something. And yeah, that would be great. Unfortunately, that's a magic trick that, that people really don't know how to, to make happen yet. I mean, the best ideas that we have are things like make synthetic organs or grow organs in pigs and replace all of your organs uh, once every 10 years when you get up there in advanced years and hope that these replacement organs will keep you keep you ticking. Maybe these replacement organs will be genetically enhanced in some way, but um, you know this is all quite speculative. On the other hand, though, we have reasonable evidence from even fly experiments that there's a way to breed flies in a way where you can increase their lifespan over a few generations. So with genetic engineering of human embryos, it may be possible to have some of those those benefits um, applied to the next generation of people, you know, your children, namely. Um, and uh, people, you know, people have concerns about that. And, you know, one of the most frequent concerns I hear is, well, I want to live forever. I don't I don't care if my child has, you know, a 20 percent longer lifespan. I want a 20 percent longer lifespan. And well, I mean, unfortunately, the time that we're living in, you know, where we are in history of technology development is that at the moment we're closer to being able to make um, the next generation, namely children, have um, uh, just uh, um, better genes, different genes, being able to choose those traits than we are being able to extend a person's lifespan, who a person who is already an adult, their lifespan by 20 percent. That's just, a, in my opinion, a significantly harder task. Right. And I guess setting aside all the ethical questions and so on, if it were possible to, let's say, make the next generation super intelligent, maybe there's a chance that you know they would then be able to invent the technology <laughs> for everyone else to kind of live longer as well. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a feedback process. Excellent. All right. Well, look, uh, is there anything else you wanted to touch on today uh, that we've kind of missed? No, no, not at all. This has been great, actually. I've, I've really had fun here. Just before we let you go, make sure you tell my listeners where they can find you online. Oh, yeah. Find me online at twitter.com slash K-A-N-Z-U-R-E. Fantastic. And also, I'll put the links for your website, your personal website. That's uh, heybrian.org and also your transcripts website, obviously, because people need to uh, be uh, aware and able to soak up that uh, Bitcoin conference and also podcast knowledge. So, look, thanks very much, Brian. I think it's been a really interesting conversation, and I'm sure my listeners will get a lot of will get a lot out of this. Yeah, absolutely. It's been fun. Thanks for having me on. Hope you guys enjoyed that. Remember, the show notes and the transcript of the interview are on my website, stefanlevera.com. You can find me on Twitter, at stefanlevera, or email me, stefanlevera at pm.me, if you have questions or if you are interested to advertise on the show. As always, thanks for listening, and I'll see you in the Citadels.